Hey there, good people in crypto land. I'm Matt Leising, and this is my podcast, Decent People. Welcome back to the conversation. Today, I spoke with Philip Martin, who is the chief security officer at Coinbase. Uh, you've heard of Coinbase, of course. It's the largest U.S. exchange, I think the second largest crypto exchange in the world after Binance. It has ushered in countless Americans and others into the crypto space uh, where you go and you get your first wallet set up and off you go to the races. So Philip is in charge of the security over at Coinbase, which is, as you might imagine, a huge responsibility. So we, we talked about his uh, journey into um, security and computers and code and how he, he's a self-described security nerd. Um, we talked about his time as a counterintelligence officer for the army uh, from 2002 to 2012, where he was deployed uh, over in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, where he was doing counter human uh, intel uh, information. He was so uh, fed up with computers at that point that he wanted nothing to do with them. But he came back, he worked for Palantir for a while. Um, it's a somewhat controversial uh, firm founded by Peter Thiel. Um, and then he made his way over to Coinbase, uh, where uh, he worked his way up to the security job. Uh, we talked about Coinbase's uh, new layer two, uh, known as Base, and uh, a function that they have created for Base called Pessimism, which is a way to get kind of an early warning system on um, problems or bugs in the code of the protocol or maybe um, on the applications that are running on top of base. So I found that part really interesting. Uh, the best part though probably was when we got into barbecue. Uh, he's got family from North Carolina and East Texas and grew up in Northern California, uh, which I think uh, NorCal maybe is not known as much for its barbecue, but it does have a pretty good San Inez tradition up there. Uh, so we got into some of the ins and outs of smoked meats. Um, so with all that out of the way, let's get to the conversation. Thank you so much for listening as always and for the support you guys are showing us. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, Philip, how you doing? Hey, Matt, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks. Um, really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, so I, th I thought, first of all, we dive into the really uh, important stuff. And I noticed on your Twitter profile that you are a maker of delicious smoked meats and baked goods. Yes. So I figured, uh, you know, with a, a security expert at Coinbase, that that's definitely the place we should start this conversation. I, I love to do both. Um, what was the last great uh, piece of meat that you smoked? Um, the, literally the last one was probably a set of St. Louis spare ribs. Um, but I have a pretty wide ranging meat smoking repertoire. I, I go, I make my own bacon. Uh -huh. Um, uh, I make my own sausage for my recipe that actually came from my, uh, my grandfather, uh, who owned a country store in North Carolina. Um, I, uh, I do the classics, brisket, uh, beef ribs, etc. uh, as well. Oh, that's amazing. So North Carolina roots, um, uh, did, did you have any pig farmers in your in your family or anything like that? If you go back far enough, yeah. Um, so my mom's side is North Carolina. My dad's side is from uh, East Texas. Uh, uh, so I get a little bit of both sides of that barbecue tradition. Yeah, that's in your blood, man. Those yeah. are two great areas for barbecue. Um, yeah, I'm about to. I'm going to smoke a pork shoulder tomorrow. Mixed oh, in, nice. Uh, yeah, pulled pork. Uh, I love them on sliders with a little bit of coleslaw. It's just heaven on a bun. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, yeah, okay. Well, now that we've got that out of the way, uh, we can get to the boring stuff. Um, so I, I was curious, uh, you, you know, you're the chief security officer at Coinbase. Um, I think, and I've read uh, about you that, that one of the things you've said is that one of the hardest parts of your job is the education part and uh -huh. just making sure that people are kind of thinking about security and thinking about ways to protect themselves and not fall for scams. Um, I was just today... I was reading uh, the SEC has subpoenaed PayPal uh, and the, because PayPal is issuing its own stablecoin that's backed by the U.S. dollar. And I was reading about this in Bloomberg and um, there was a line that uh, caught my attention. And it was, basically the line was that uh, the government might not be in favor of stablecoins and crypto in general because it helps, uh, it helps make money laundering easier. And... I kind of had to, I screamed out loud when I read that um, because uh, in 2023 and, and at a place like Bloomberg News, I would hope that they they understood that that's not the case at all. And it's actually the yeah. opposite. So I was wondering maybe, can you set the record straight for us there on, on, is it easier to launder money on a blockchain or if you're getting a bag of cash, uh, you know, kind of put through the, the Italian restaurants in Brooklyn kind of model? Yeah. Well, having never done either, a firsthand comparison is a little bit beyond me, but I can certainly talk about the the comparative differences, right? Like, I think the there, there, there's a stat, I'm sure this is apocryphal, um, that says that uh, half of the FBI are accountants. <laughs> um, and while it's, you know, it's probably not literally half, I think what this speaks to is the enormous complexity of the sort of current financial system in the world, um, when you talk about your, you know, your Italian restaurant, your laundromat or whatever, and especially as you start getting international and talk about, you know, international fiat funds flows, mm -hmm. the visibility is just so, so, so difficult. Hasn't the, uh, the foreign currency market often been linked with money laundering mm -hmm. because it's so big and so fast? Well, this is one of the big reasons that uh, FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, which was originally stood up and why they do country-level uh, lists of sort of countries that have higher, lower money laundering yeah. risk, right, um, is to is to just shine a light on those jurisdictions where it, it's perhaps a little bit easier to move fiat in, in ways that are harder to, to, to get visibility on. Um, but, but that's the whole point of the blockchain, right, is that when you move funds, that movement is on the blockchain. And I think the, the part of the trips people up here is the is the well, yes, but like the identity isn't isn't attached to those funds on the blockchain. Right. Correct. Correct. It's, yeah, not, it's a pseudonym, right? The right. Pseudonymous. Um, pseudonymous. But the reality is um once a law enforcement agency uh can get that identity, then the entire history of the of those transactions and the funds flow is immediately available. Right. So from a money laundering perspective, it's sort of the worst of all worlds. Yeah. Amen. Thank you for saying it so clearly. I, I've been shouting this forever and it, it still just kind of get, gets on my nerves. Um, yeah. Another similar case was recently, you know, Hamas was, uh, there was some erroneous reporting about how much Hamas had raised in crypto uh, to fund its attack on Israel. And, uh -huh. you know, there was some bad, bad reporting, but it kind of glossed over the point that Hamas earlier this year stopped taking Bitcoin because it is so easily traceable. It's it can be frozen, which Israel yep. has done previously, and it's like it's it's actually like really bad. You know, it's not a good tool for bad guys at all. And, and it's just uh, 
So correct. Yeah. But I think the hard thing is there, right? That that it is um, just like you said at the beginning. Is, is there's an education gap here that we we have to keep pushing on and help people understand the realities, not just the you know the one headline that someone yeah. reads about this. Do you think part of the problem is that um, crypto is always introduced as complicated and, you know, you don't have to understand all of these things about it because it's so, you know, whatever, like it's, it's, you can barely understand it if you're a brilliant person. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think it's that hard to understand. And I think that's a big sort of um, shield that people use to, yep. to, to not have to explain it or not have to feel like they understand it. Do you think that's that kind of, factors into that? I do. I, I think we've done ourselves no favors because I think, I do this sometimes when someone tells me crypto is so complicated, I ask them, could you please explain how when you swipe your credit card, money moves out of your bank? <laughs> yeah. Because if you've ever taken a look behind the curtain there, it is not a simple process. Yeah. Um, uh, in many ways, the sort of modern banking system is is reliant on these old technologies or influences from these old technologies. And when once you get under the hood, it's enormous complexity. Uh, but it's, I think the, the thing that's been done is to put a very user-friendly skin on it, right? You don't need to know about acquiring merchant or acquiring banks and merchants and payment processing gateways and all that stuff to use a credit card. You just swipe your card, right? Um, yeah. So I think that's a direction we have to head in the industry more and more. Oh yeah, I agree that that's a definite problem on the user experience side. It's it's still um, nothing like swiping an ATM card or mm -hmm. whatever Apple Pay at a grocery store. Um, so does that um, another kind of thing that I've I, so. I guess one of the things that made me fall in love with crypto uh, was the DAO hack back in mm -hmm. 2016. And ever since then, I've just, it, it's been um, fascinating for me to see how security still hasn't kind of risen to the top of like people thinking about security first. That's, that's the way I would, you know, if I was ever building a project on Ethereum or, or Solana or, or whatever, yeah. I think security would be, I think, top of mind for me. It still seems to be last, in my opinion. Do, what do you think about that? And, and are, are things changing in that way? I don't know that I'd agree with last, but... I do think it is today much too hard to write secure smart contract code, for example. I, I frequently compare it to if you if you could go back in time and grab a software engineer from 1970, fast forward him to today, sit him in front of a modern development environment and tell him, write secure code. Right? He would he would fail abysmally. Yeah. Because the you know the tools he he knew how to use would be very different. The there are new classes of bugs that we have discovered since then that, that this person wouldn't be aware of. It would be an almost impossible hill for them to climb. And instead, today what we're doing is we're grabbing software engineers, you know, that 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 fall over the blockchain and say, okay, great, write secure financial code, which is which is a whole different thing than writing, you know, code for a random website or or whatever, and requires a lot more focus and care and uh, in many ways, different approaches, right? Much more paranoid design patterns yeah. than you would normally have, and I think because of that, um, there it, it's 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 hard for that person to or that project to build things. And really, the gap there 
is not that these people don't want to do the right thing. It's not even necessarily that they come in with something other than a security-first mindset. They may well do that. It's that they don't have the tools to implement that desire without having to, you know, go through a bunch of education and research and everything else that not everyone even knows they need to do. Yeah. Yeah, and th- this is something I wrote about in my book um, about Ethereum and the DAO and stuff is that because it's in a smart contract environment, once you release your code and it gets um, uploaded to the blockchain, like you can't change it. So if there's a bug, it's there. And it's it's very difficult to change that code once it's um, out and been released. And so it sort of sets up this, um, I think we're setting ourselves up for failure because it's expecting people to write perfect code. And we all know that never happens. I mean, yeah. I think about how many updates do you get, you know, over a year for, your iPhone or just simple apps and things like that. So I guess, is that um, another way that it's, we're making it like the blockchain industry is making it harder for ourselves. Like there's a tough UX right now. And then developers are supposed to be, you know, putting out this code that that's um, pristine, which. Yeah. You know. uh, I think to some extent, um, you know, the other, the other comparison I make to this is writing code for space missions. Yeah. Right? And, if you, if you go in and research a bit how NASA writes code, um, it is a very different process from, you know, the, the, the process that, that you and I might, might be familiar with. Because once, they, once it's out there, right, there's, it's pretty tough to ship a bug fix um, on the order of millions of miles. Do they do, and, um, my dad worked for NASA his whole career, and, and he was in building spacecraft, and I know... Back in the day when NASA was fully funded, um, let's just, that's a caveat here. Um, they would have fail safes. Like uh-huh. they would have not just a backup, but a, a, another backup, and maybe even a backup to that backup, backup. Yep. And that's because if you're building something like Voyager that's supposed to, you know, exit the solar system and something breaks halfway, you, know, you got to have a backup. But is that, are you yes. saying that they do that in the code um, realm as well? Yeah, exactly. Um, they do, they, this is a very similar process. There, there have been some, several good books published on sort of NASA's approach here. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the thing that we as an industry don't do well today is, uh, there are no standards for secure development on a blockchain. There are no, um, well, there are some, I should say, I should give credit. There are some, um, secure libraries that folks can use. I love the fact that we have things like the ERC 20 or 721 or, or, or what have you, standards around this to define at least broadly APIs or interfaces, I should say. Um, but I think that there we have a lot of distance yet to travel in that space so that um, the, I say this a lot internally, but like so that the, the, the easy decision is the right decision. Oh, yeah. And that's just not the case today in blockchain software development. Yeah, I, I hear that. I think I think there's kind of a, an ethos or, or a desire for folks to go fast and, and build things, you know, get them out there before maybe they're ready. Um, I, I guess it's a competitive world, and I can kind of understand that. But you know, who wants to be, um, you know, like the Ronin Bridge or whatever where that gets hacked for what was it, yeah. six hundred fifty million or something insane? Um, cause you know, that's not your money. And like for me coming from a wall street background where I covered wall street for many years, like that's kind of the most important thing about the regulations that, that, um, backup banks and, and trading is that 
this is not your money. You know, you have to be extremely careful with other people's money. So that that hasn't really hit the industry yet, I think, either. Yeah. I think there's one thing in there is like, I don't think fast is is inherently bad, right? It's like, it's a lot like driving, right? Um, if you're on a well-paved racetrack, right, with, yeah. with, with uh, uh, clear instructions and the right training, fast is good. You can go super fast. If you're on a backcountry dirt road, um, that same speed is going to kill you. And, and the whole difference is the amount of effort that's gone into the preparation and infrastructure before that drive. Yeah, right? that's a great analogy. I love that. And that kind of leads me into what I, what I want to talk about too. Um, so Coinbase obviously is the biggest exchange uh, in the U.S. Uh, it's, it's the gateway for, for most everyone I've, I know uh, to get into crypto. It's what I tell people to do, to go open a Coinbase account. But really interestingly, you guys have been branching out in different areas. And the one I, I want to talk about most is base, mm. which is your uh, layer two. So we're, we're going to have to, but what I want to get to is pessimism. But first of all, yeah. we got to go the long way here a little bit. And I think kind of hold some people's hands. So base is a blockchain rollup that you guys built at Coinbase. And that's basically what rollups are, um, is, is it? It's kind of like a side chain to the main chain, like Ethereum. So on a rollup, you can be doing a whole bunch of transactions, but they're not hitting the main chain and they don't need to be verified by in every block, you know. So it's a way for doing more transactions per second and and doing more throughput while you also have the underlying security of like the Ethereum blockchain, for example. So that that's helped. Because mm -hmm. when Ethereum gets crowded, it gets slow and it gets very frustrating and costs yep. a lot of money for transactions to go into a block. So an L2 like Base is, has been a great solution. Um, it's, it's built on optimism, as, as a lot of these guys are. Um, and, and so that is, optimism is, you know, the, the operating system or the, I'm not sure, like the software kind of suite, I guess that you would call it. But then, so you guys have Base and then you you introduced this thing called pessimism, uh, which as I understand it, it is a way, it's kind of like a real time way for developers, I guess, to know if there are bugs or if there's a problem with the protocol. Like maybe you could jump in here, Philip, and just sort of like give, give us the lowdown on what pessimism is and, and why you guys felt like the need to create this. Yeah, for sure. So I, I think you captured it actually in in, in a broad sense, and, and maybe I'll just rewind a little bit. Um, since since uh, very early on, when Coinbase started listing more and more assets, we realized that we needed to develop a way to monitor those assets, um, to monitor the health of those assets, to monitor for um, you know when we talk about smart contract assets, to monitor for the use of potentially dangerous functions. Um, so that we could be uh, aware as early as possible of any sort of uh, uh, risky activity, bad activity, and take measures to the extent it was possible um, to protect our customers. Um, so you can imagine this is, you know, we see an unhealthy amount of hash power start to coalesce with one entity. We might, you know, start to bump up uh, a, a confirmation count requirements for a given blockchain. We see a, you know, maybe there's a smart contract um, that we're monitoring. We see strange activity. We might want to take one of a number of actions, potentially, depending on what smart contract And is. could that even just be a coin that you've listed? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, 
And so pessimism really is an extension of that, but focused on base in particular um, to allow, I'd sort of encapsulate it as, as health monitoring of uh, assets deployed on base. Right. So instead of instead of us, you know, the exchange getting this this early warning, we wanted to make it easy for asset issuers to get the same exact early warning that we would get of potentially suspicious activity on a blockchain. Okay. And you guys recently you op- open sourced it. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody can grab it and monitor it themselves. Um. So that seems like to me to be a a step forward at, at the very least, um, where, um, maybe this is a way, uh, it's like an early warning system. Yep. Ha, have you guys had success in, in mo- like, I, I'm sorry, I don't know this, but, um, is it, is it live and have you found like any, or ha- has it helped prevent any problems so far? So our, our internal version of this, which, which goes to all the chains, uh, uh, we support, um, we've been running this for, I mean, I have to go back and look for years. Um, internally, though. Yeah, internally, probably like, uh, I don't know, it's called four, four plus years okay. um, internally. Um, and it's certainly brought to our attention things um, that we would not otherwise have known and prompted us to take sort of defensive action. Um, for the most part, um, it's stuff that's, you know, relatively benign, just a strange thing. Hey, why did, why did this function get executed? on this uh, smart contract when we don't think it was supposed to be, things like that. Um, and we can reach out to issuers or whoever and ask and, and figure things out. I'm not, I'm, I'm not aware of anything on pessimism uh, uh, or anything on um, base or uh, other optimism change that pessimism has caught specifically, although I could be wrong about that. Okay. I love the name. Did you come up with the name? I, I did not. Okay. I am completely terrible at naming things. Um, <laughs> But the team did. Okay. Yeah. It's good to have a little humor out there and, and something that's not is. like a non-fungible token or a decentralized autonomous organization, you know, or account abstraction. Like there's so many jargony, terrible words um, that I wish, I wish the blockchain quote unquote could just hire a PR firm and kind of <laughs> like do some focus. Well, you should, you should spin a DAO up for that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, well, so... We're talking about on-chain stuff. Uh, one of the biggest off-chain things that happened in the last year was FTX. Um, the, the trial is just finishing up there. Um, are you are you paying attention to that? And does does that ever uh, were there security? Are, are there security lessons that you would want to tell people about the FTX situation? We certainly pay attention to it. Um, we uh, like we pay attention basically to. Any bad thing that happens in crypto, um, I'm a big fan of, of learning from mistakes, and my preference is to learn from other people's mistakes rather than uh, uh, my own. Um, so, you know, uh, not just the trial. We we've we've paid close attention to all the various filings uh, around that, and really read it with a fine tooth comb. Um, I think that you know, there's there's lots of good lessons in there around what not to do if you're setting up an exchange from scratch um, and things to avoid and and shortcuts not to take. I think um, for us, as we read it, uh, it really reinforced the approach we've taken historically, um, which has not been the fastest approach 
to take, but it has uh, so far been an extremely safe approach to take to private key management, uh, to how we think about deploying uh, secure software, um, to how we think about um, the, the sort of the foundational infrastructure of, uh, a cryptocurrency company. Um, and it's really been in that sense, um, validating that, that yes, our approach is a little bit slower, but it's certainly a lot safer. Yeah. And maybe, um, you, so th- th- this is going to be maybe contentious with you, but I always like to tell people to not leave their money on an exchange because you, for what it's worth, I am, that is not at all a contentious with me. I, I choose to keep all of mine on Coinbase because I feel very strongly that if we screw it up, I should feel pain. Um, but, but absent that I would probably self custody. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think that was another big lesson or, I mean, it's God, how many lessons do we have to learn um, where this has happened on exchanges and, and so people should always move their money, I think, off exchange, because that's kind of one of the powers here is that you have self-custody of it. It's yours. It's in your wallet. And well, but, um, I, So I think, uh, I don't know, I think this is actually a really deep topic um, because I think there is a very real benefit in self-custody in that, um, in that level of control. But I also think that once that amount that you self-custody starts to get material, the amount of work that you should be doing to ensure the safety of those funds just increases dramatically, right? Suddenly yeah. you start after thinking about, well, what if there's a house fire and my, you know, my, my ledger that I'm using melts? Um, yeah. Okay, well, I'll get a backup, uh, I'll put a backup seed phrase somewhere. Well, where are you going to put that exactly? Who do you trust with that seed phrase? Well, I'm going to encrypt the seed phrase before I give it to someone else. Okay, great. How are you, where are you going to store the key that encrypts the seed phrase? Um, and the answer can't be beside the ledger that stored your crypto in the first place. Right. Right. Um, so you start to get into this extremely complicated world where I think that, um, I mean, obviously I would have this opinion, but I think we do a pretty good job at ensuring that um, no matter what reasonable, reasonably, like what foreseeable bad thing is going to happen, that you know our customer's crypto is going to be there um but to your point along with that you accept the risk of having less control so i i think it, it really is a spectrum um for people depending on how much we're talking about depending on how much effort they're willing to invest how much knowledge they have or are willing to acquire in this space um uh, that that everyone really needs to think hard about when they think about where they're putting their crypto do you think We'll ever have an, an FDIC kind of like insurance program for crypto? So, I hope so one day. Um, I think that that would be a potentially very valuable tool to reassure the public. Um, but I also think that like today, for example, FDIC protects against insolvency, which is the primary risk for your money in a bank, right? Is the insolvency of the bank. Um, but I mean, history has shown that the primary risk to your money on a third-party exchange is, is probably a hack, right? Mm-hmm. A loss, uh, the result in, in a loss for that, uh, for that institution, which is a whole different risk set, right? Uh, for something like a, an insurance fund to cover. Um, 
So, so yes, I hope there is a CIPIC or an FDIC for crypto one day, but I think it would, it would take some material innovation uh, to get there. Yeah. Um, speaking of, you know, managing a large amount of crypto, I, I, I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I had heard um, that Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss had their private keys cut up and pieces of paper that they stored in various uh, safe deposit boxes or places around the country, you know, like they were all uh-huh. <laughs> uh, sort of like, which, you know, it's not very easy if you want to move stuff around, but I guess uh, it's one, it's one approach to safety. It is one approach. Yeah. Um, not one I'd recommend, but it is one approach. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'd love to, I'd love to go back a little bit. Um, and one thing that really jumped out, uh, your resume to me was when you were in, in counterintelligence um, for the army. Um, you, you it looks like you started that in July of two thousand two, which wasn't that long after September eleventh. So I wondered if, if September eleventh had any um, uh, thing to do with you you going into the army. It was it was part of it. So the the larger context there is, um, I was at the time at a at a, a small startup in Silicon Valley called Cobalt Networks. Um, we made some really cool before it's before it's time like Linux uh, workgroup servers, um, and we had gotten acquired by Sun Microsystems. Um, Sun was a behemoth, right? So I went from. I don't know, at the time it was probably just a couple hundred people at, at Cobalt to this like, I'm going to guess Sun was like 30, 40,000 people, um, huge organization. that didn't really know what to do with that whole Linux thing at the time. And so they're like, yeah, we want, we want, we want Linux. We're going to buy this company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I think that was probably about the extent of the business plan, I, I would guess. <laughs> um, and I just really hated it. Honestly, um, huge company, tons of bureaucracy. Um, no one really knew what to do with this whole Linux thing um, when they were still selling at the time, um, Spark Solaris, uh, and uh, decided this just isn't for me um, and sort of stepped away. Uh, and September 11th had just happened. Um, and I was, and there's a, there's a longer sort of tradition of service in my family as well. Um, so I decided to sort of step over. And when I did, you know, went through the whole recruiting process and like, okay, like, what do you want to do? I'm like, what doesn't involve computers at all? Like that was how sort of burned out I was on, mm-hmm. on uh, a computer space. And um, they said this counterintelligence thing, uh, that has no computers at all. And look, look, they weren't wrong at the time. And I went in that. Um, it was a fascinating field. It's still, it's a a fascinating field. Um, and I learned from more about, I would say, you know, people and applied psychology than, um, I would ever have learned outside of an experience like that. Um, It surprises me that it wasn't computer-based. So are you, so you were like human-based intelligence? Yes. Yeah, you were. Okay. Now, now later on, so so Cybercom stood up much later. Um, I want to say it was like 2009-ish, maybe, 2011, somewhere somewhere in that vicinity. Um, and so before that, there was no sort of centralized um, uh, cyber organization in, in DOD per se. 
Um, but um, there was, uh, as part of counterintelligence, right? You're doing you're, you're doing investigations as well, and there was a forensics component to that that I hadn't really encountered before. Mm-hmm. Um, but but much more important for me, you know, um, in in growing my skill set was was you know really that 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 people oriented component of the field um, that you know come to find out. Um, it's actually what security is all about, if you ask me. Um, certainly, yes, there's there's a lot of, um, you know, hardcore technical uh, 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 skills and information and decisions. But at the end of the day, it's all being implemented by people. Um, and if, if you can't figure out how to get the thing you think needs to get done, done, um, which normally requires buy-in from somebody else, and it's not going to get done no matter how right you are. Yeah. Did you gain any sympathy for reporters learning that sort of skill? <laughs> I, would, I, would I have a ton of sympathy for reporters. Oh, you do? Um, oh, good. <laughs> because I, I see reporters as basically investigators yeah. uh, with none of the power. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. It's kind of sad, but true. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's very much a human thing and an in, in interviewing skill and, you know, like gut feelings and things are, are all entwined with that for sure. Um, and along the way, you you learned some rudimentary Arabic? Yeah, um, I uh, I probably, so the military, or really the duty writ large, has a five-point scale where they measure uh, proficiency. Um, so actually it's six because you start at zero. Um, so, so zero meaning you know, basically none to five being a, a college graduate level proficiency. So I, I, I maxed out at about a, about, about a three, okay. um, which you can think of as more or less a high school graduate. Okay. And were you, um, were you deployed in like Afghanistan or Iraq or anything in that area? Yep. I uh, spent some time overseas for sure. Can you talk about that at all or? Uh, any good stories that are that are okay to tell? <laughs> I mean, um, uh, I think that the really the the epitome of that experience for me and, and what I took away from it. There are certainly some you know interesting uh, uh, vignettes as part of that. Um, but so I was I was in Iraq. Um, I guess it would have been five to five to seven. Um, 2005 to 2007. Yeah. Um, and so this so was, was like pretty gnarly at that point, right? It, uh, parts of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, you learn a lot in that, just like looking around how the, how the broader situation is going down um, about, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the function of, of incentives and in sort of large scale behavior. Right. Like I, I came away from, from that experience. One of the things I really took away was that like, no matter how irrational, excluding sort of, you know, the realm of mental illness, right. Uh, even there, I think you can say this is true. No matter how irrational someone appears to you to be, um, if you dig down, there's probably from their perspective, a very rational set of reasons that they're doing what they're doing. Um, and, and, and never discount the fact that, that from their perspective, um, that, that, that you don't understand that perspective. And so you're going to have a hard time, especially once you get into sort of very cross-cultural, um, situations, a hard time understanding their incentives and therefore predicting their behavior. 
Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody the other day about reporting and, you know, the five W's, the who, what, when, where, mm -hmm. why, and how. And, you know, I was saying the why to me is always the most interesting of those five categories. Um, and I think that's kind of what you're getting at. It's like, why, what is motivating somebody? Why are you willing to do this? Mm -hmm. Um, and so also when you just say incentives, you know, that's such a cute, like a buzzword for crypto, you know, yeah. cause that, that's like, did, so did you, did you take that learn? Like, was that something that you were able to then kind of evolve and use once you, once you got into crypto stuff and like blockchain based systems? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a lesson, both, both that's useful in security, it's useful in crypto, it's useful throughout life really. Um, but, but absolutely it's something, it's, it's a perspective that I bring um, I think every day, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and this, and so it sounds like, so you mentioned that there was service in your family that you're from, you know, on both your parents' side, there was, there's East Texas and there was New North, North Carolina, excuse me. Um, did you, so what was your, what was your upbringing like? Was it, were you guys a military, you weren't a military family, were you? No, no. Um, uh, my dad's actually a uh, a pastor. Oh wow! Yeah, so I grew up a preacher's kid, um, okay. and we would split summers when I was off school between Texas and North Carolina. So I'd you know spend one summer in Texas, the next in North Carolina, back to Texas, etc. Um, which is really cool, right? As a as a Northern California kid, I grew up um, you know just in the in the North Bay of the Bay Area, and um, it was a very very different experience very different culturally, very different, really across the board, very different. Um, but I liked it. Um, I got into computers super early. Um, I, uh, like early high school, I was teaching myself to write C and Perl, started a web design business when I was, I think, a junior in high school, built websites for local companies, stuff like that. Um, yeah, was that kind of in that sweet spot where the internet was out there and all businesses were all trying to get on it, but there yep. weren't a lot of people like Squarespace didn't exist sort of thing. Exactly. We weren't, we weren't quite in sort of the interactive web yet. Um, but it was, it was right around the corner. Yeah. And you were in a great spot for that in the Bay area. Yeah. Um, in particular in the Bay area, uh, it was, it was a great place to be. So you said North Bay, was it like Santa Rosa or, uh, yeah, that area. Okay. Yeah. Great. I love that area. I lived up there for a while. Um, oh, nice. Right, so I'm going to ask you just a sidebar here, contentious question. Uh, I want you to rank these barbecues uh, in order of your preference. There's San Inez, there's uh, Texas, and then there's North Carolina. Well, um, okay, I, I will answer the question straight, and then I'm going to complain about the question. Um, <laughs> Texas, North Carolina, and San Inez. All right. But um, I'm going to complain about it because if, if I go a layer deeper, I would probably mix and match. Like, you know, brisket would be on my number one, but my number two would probably be whole hog, mm. um, very, South very Carolina, Carolina, right? Right. Uh, and so it, it would it would be a much more layered answer. Yeah. And see, I thought watching all those barbecue shows on TV would never help me in my career, and <laughs> here we are. And I know you never know what you need to know. <laughs> um. But so okay, another thing that I, caught my eye was your work at Palantir. Mm -hmm. Um, did, so the, they get a pretty harsh, uh, rap from a lot of folks. Um, you know, if we go back to the Cambridge Analytica days, Peter Thiel, he's contentious. 
how do you how do you view it and what, what would you say to somebody who thinks that maybe that firm doesn't have people's best intentions in mind i mean i, I view it as a, on a very different light um honestly so i spent just about five years uh, a pounder there from from when it was about 300 or so people um in i guess that'd be 2011 or so um up through 16 when i came over to coinbase and um the it's so interesting and i think in 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 a way this this is like uh, a a precursor to what i to what i've seen in sort of the the blockchain space we talked about the money laundering point earlier is being on the inside and and you know knowing the people working uh with the company working across the board um and knowing their character and and knowing um the the pride they take in uh, the the work that they do in the customers, both government and commercial, is just nothing at all like the picture that you would form if you if you your only knowledge of the company was uh, was like a, you know, press. a collection of news articles that you yeah. read about about Palantir. And so I, I I think you know for a long time Palantir didn't do itself any favors because we didn't really do any PR. Um, and so the only voice in the room, if you were not there, was uh, was the external voice, right? Um, yeah. But it's it's uh, what I would say to somebody who 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 had that belief is um, fundamentally right. Like, given the data at their disposal, I could see it, right? I could see how they could get there. But I think that if you start to get into you know, the reality of what Palantir is doing um, and, and Palantir has become much more talkative over the last few years about the kind of things that it's, it's working in. Um, I think you'll find a much more nuanced picture. Yeah. Um, and so was it at that time when you were at Palantir that you first came across like Bitcoin or blockchain? It was actually. Mm-hmm. So one of the guys that was working on my team at the time, um, came up one day and said, hey, um, I'm going to build a, a cryptocurrency mining rig. Do you want to, you want to like, you know, help, do you want to go in on it with me? Yeah. And I said to him, I said, none of those words make any sense to me. Um, <laughs> can you like, what are you talking about? Um, and so I started learning about uh, Bitcoin at the time. What year? So this is 2014 this would have been, yeah, somewhere in that, like 13, 14, somewhere in that vicinity. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, I, got, I could go figure it out, because this was when Butterfly Labs um, had started talking about their ASIC miner, um, but hadn't delivered it yet. Um, so, And these were uh, the days, what we should say, where you could still kind of mine on a rig, you know, in your, yeah. in your room, in your bedroom, whatever, and, and get some Bitcoin. Yep, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so at the time, what I told him was, I don't know, that's silly internet money. Why would I, why would I do that? I very much regret that decision um, <laughs> because uh, he went on to mine quite a few Bitcoins. Uh, um, Did but, he lose them in a CPU that's now in a storage place that he's trying to find? It's not in a garbage dump. Yeah, that was in a garbage dump. And he's building a machine to excavate it. And yeah, yeah it's all those that. stories um, are so crazy. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but um, I kept 
reading about it. I kept um, sort of exploring exploring the space, understanding more about it. I kept watching the developments in the space. Um, and, you know, in many ways, that sort of set the foundation for me later joining Coinbase. Because, well, where did your, so you got burned out um, on computers uh, when Sun took over the, the startup you were working for, went into the army and counterintel, didn't do anything with computers, came out, Went to Palantir, where you were. Um, sorry, I had it here before me. Uh, you, so you were working on. Uh, you were like helping them with their information security. Mm-hmm. So, where did the security element was was the stuff you were doing prior to the, your army stint security based, or yeah, was that so, something that you you started at Palantir? Um, it, it it had been. I, I've always been a security nerd. Um, it really started. When um, I was um, on IRC way back in the day in high school, and uh, uh, and you know someone used I forget it was what, what it was at the time teardrop or something um, to to boot me off because they didn't like something I had said. I'm like, what in the world is happening? <laughs> um, right. And, Sorry, the, those are the chat rooms, right? The uh, yeah, yeah. The, the bulletin board kind of stuff. Correct. Yeah. And that just started me down a whole rabbit hole. Um, okay. around security and um, writing code and, and um, writing security tools and all sorts of fun stuff. Um, so I'd, I'd been a security nerd, I would say, since since the you know very, very beginning. Um, so then the permissionlessness of like Bitcoin and whatnot, that must have appealed to you? Yeah, um, that appealed to me... Um, uh, as well as the cryptography aspect. I mean, I had also gotten into cryptography very, very early on. Um, really enjoyed the, the sort of the math piece of it uh, and the intersection of, you know, the math and software engineering. Um, so so that the, really the whole package, like, really appealed to me there. Um, yeah. What, um, what, as a security guy, when you first saw, like, the Bitcoin blockchain, what did you think of it uh, from a security standpoint? It well. It made a lot of sense to me because um, I had been looking at, and, and, and at the time, um, there had been a lot of discussion around hash chains for uh, the validating the integrity of log files. Hmm. And so when I started reading the, the, the Bitcoin white paper, I'm like, oh, this makes sense to me. Like this, I understand sort of the underpinnings of this and how this could work. And was that, um, the thing that unlocked it for me was that this was the first time somebody suggested um, a global database of every single transaction that, yep. that, that you could, that a computer could then check to make sure it's valid. And I think that was something that was like, oh, that's fascinating. And that makes sense as to why now I can't just make up something I call Bitcoin and try to pass it off to you for, say, $100. Yep. Um, I mean, that and and sort of as a solution to the Byzantine generals problem, I think, um, was really, really cool to see. Yeah. Was there, so was there a moment where you just kind of fell down the rabbit hole or, or like a, a protocol or anything that came out that really made you see that this was not just silly internet money, but that there was something else behind it? I mean, so I flirted with it for a long time. Um, and, and I think really what made me good on the rabbit hole was the opportunity at Coinbase. Um, because, 
uh, I sort of looked at it as, as, as a bit of a curiosity for a long time. And then when I started talking seriously to Coinbase, and I, start, I started really thinking about it. Um, and what really got me um, super excited was the realization that um, this was something new in the world. And and this new thing in the world was going to require new ways of thinking about security for it. Um, I'm I'm a firm believer in the idea that most of the time when we're solving problems, we should be stealing those solutions from other places because there are very few new problems in the world. And even when we have something that's perhaps new around the edges, there's probably an 80 percent solution that we can copy off of. Um, and, you know, add some duct tape and bailing wire and, 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 and make it sort of fit the problem. Yeah. I, I felt that way um, when I first came across it around 2015 or so, mm-hmm. because I had gotten really well versed at Bloomberg news and like, um, market structure. And so I was writing about like the futures market or the U S treasury market or the corporate bond market, all of which had been around for decades. You know, they mm-hmm. were very well established. They had, all the different aspects, you know, the exchanges, the broker dealers, the hedge funds, the the investors, all that stuff, uh, the regulators. And then crypto comes along and they start building like this new structure right in front of my eyes. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. Cause you know, everything I'd been dealing with had been set. In, I felt like it was set in stone, uh-huh. but here, you know, crypto came along and all of a sudden you you had verifiable electronic money that you could send anywhere around the world. And then, you had an NFT, which is now a digital file that is, you know, traceable and and can be deemed rare. Um, and and they're doing things with lending and they're doing things with capital formation and all this stuff that I just, I, I really, that was one thing that I thought was really exciting was that you we got to be watching this whole new sort of ecosystem be built right before us. Yeah, I think, um, exactly, exactly. Um, and so at Coinbase, did you, so how's it going there? And I know you guys, like you seem to, I know this is in your area and if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But, you know, you guys seem to be fighting the good fight in terms of the, the industry, uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, with, with an SEC that, that would more, more like to sue, you know, companies than to publish, you know, rules for comment. Um, do, do you, you know, amid kind of the overall bear market and stuff, like it, how are you feeling in terms of optimism and, and just like the different areas that need to, you know, the, the fights that are, are being, you know, waged that need to be won and, and things like that. You know, we've, we've talked about security a lot, but like regulations also, um, super important and, and should go hand in hand with security. Um, do you, are you, are you feeling heartened these days or how, how would you characterize it? You know, I would say I'm incredibly optimistic. And the reason I'm incredibly optimistic is I remember, um, you know, the last bear market, call it 2018, right? Um, and crypto was down and, you know, who knows what was going to happen. And you look around you know, you, you, you pull your head up from Coinbase and you look around and like, no one really notices. No, one's, it's not really, 
in the broader communities, even on their radar for the most part. Today, it is a whole different story. We have a legislative framework passed in the EU. We have one in Singapore. Japan has stuff. We see, we see activity there in Brazil. We see activity here in the U.S. in Congress. Um, we see, you know, uh, journalists focused on the, the space and the industry. Um, so I'm, I am more confident than ever that crypto is here to stay. Yeah, not only that, but like in the payment space, like I mentioned, PayPal. Uh-huh. Visa is very yep. active. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of like, I think the payment space is really waking up to the possibilities here. And that's, that's really interesting. Absolutely. So, so in that sense, um, yes, there are going to be trials and tribulations. No journey is a real straight line up and to the right. But when I look at the progress that we've made over, over a very short, you know, five years, it is truly remarkable. I think, uh, the, 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 where we have come. Yeah, that's, that's a great place to leave it. I like to try to leave it on a, on a high note. And I think that, I think you just captured it there. Um, even in, in a bear market that's lasting, um, you know, it, it seems a lot longer than it has been. Uh, in yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it, I do, I do share that optimism. I think there are really some big um, breakthroughs that have happened, like account abstraction, there's multi-party compute. Um, there's a couple other things that are all, I think, really foundational and are, are setting the stage for some really um, fascinating developments and evolutions and leaps in the technology to come here very soon. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what that all ends up being. Yeah, me too. So yeah, Philip, thank you for a fascinating conversation and for sharing your, your story. It's really, um, really intriguing all, all the ways uh, that, you know, the places you've been and what you've done. So um, I love getting into it with, with folks uh, such as yourself. And uh, it, it, tell people, you know, if they want to learn more about you or, or more about Coinbase or more about, uh, you know, just good cyber hygiene, like where they can find you or find more information on that stuff. Yeah, sure. Um... Best place to go is probably our YouTube channel. Uh, uh, I notice you aren't not tweeting very much anymore. Well, I, I tweet off and on. Um, uh, I think the 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 best place folks can go is uh, is YouTube. We also we also my team in particular, um, not just me, does a ton of writing on the Coinbase blog okay. um, on on everything from hardcore cybersecurity all the way through to, you know, tips you can use with your parents uh, this holiday season to keep them safe. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Well, yeah, Philip, thanks again. I really enjoyed our conversation and, and best of luck to you guys at Coinbase going forward. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. I enjoyed it as well. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to rate and follow this show on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Decent People is a production of Decentral Media. It is produced by Matt Bogart with music by Brian Duncan and Kareem Imes. Mm-hmm.